I'm Dale Denwald. And I'm Nuria Martinez-Keel. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. Runoff elections are Tuesday in Oklahoma. Some local and statewide Republican races feature an established incumbent and a challenger from the right who questions their opponent's conservative credentials. Reporter Ben Felder is in the studio with us this week, looking ahead at Tuesday's runoff elections. So I'd like to start with a state Senate race in western Oklahoma that maybe is in the unlikeliest of places, but you found it illuminating for a certain theme you noticed in politics this year. Can you describe the two candidates in this Republican race? Yeah, so it's in a District 26, uh, two Republicans on the runoff. Um, there were three candidates, and uh, neither of the candidates uh, were able to get over the 50% threshold necessary. So two are in a runoff. And, um, you know, the winner is going to be a Republican. It's not going to alter the balance of, of political power in the Capitol. And um, it won't even alter the ideology power, although these two uh, candidates kind of have different ideologies. But I found it interesting because on one hand, you've got an incumbent, um, State Senator Darcy Eck, uh, who is finishing up his second term. So he's been in the Senate for eight years. Uh, he served in the Kingfisher City Council. So kind of an established politician. Um, and I use that word uh, maybe in a more positive light than his opponent would. Um, but anytime you have an incumbent that's kind of being forced into a runoff, um, I think it's always interesting because incumbents don't lose very often. But his challenger is a guy by the name of uh, Brady Butler, who is brand new to politics and has kind of picked up on this theme of it takes an outsider to get things done. And there's a couple things that are really interesting about these two candidates, and particularly Mr. Butler and kind of how he he views um, Darcy Eck. The first thing Butler told me about Senator Eck is that he thought he was a Western Oklahoma gym. He said, I don't have anything bad to say about this guy at all, except he thought that he was a part of the establishment, had been in too long, that he uh, too often compromised, not just with Democrats, but with special interest. Didn't have any specific examples of that. There weren't too many votes that I think the two would disagree on. Probably a couple, maybe school vouchers and um, maybe a past tax increase uh, vote. But other than that, they probably would be pretty similar in their voting record. Um, But what Brady told me was that I'm not focused on, and his exact quote is in my story, but I'm not focused on education funding or fixing bridges or any of the, and these are my term, those kind of kitchen table issues that normally you hear a candidate talk a lot about. He said that he wanted to go in there and disrupt government. And so Usually you wouldn't expect a candidate who's not really willing, not say willing, but not focused on those core issues. You wouldn't find them being successful. But in this race, um, he is finding some success. He finished second. um, And second place finishers in a primary can do pretty well in in a runoff. And it's close enough right now where I think uh, this race is kind of considered a a toss-up. Ben, sources in your story described Senator Yeck as a statesman who digs into the issues. His opponent, you just mentioned, Brady Butler, in your story, is described as short on policy, but big on tapping into voter frustration. Yeah, I think right now you have a difference between policy and ideology. And I think this kind of speaks to what we're seeing, you know, not just in Oklahoma, but across the country, that when it comes to... uh, getting support, particularly right now in the Republican Party, although I think you can see some themes of this in the Democratic Party as well. But in a state like Oklahoma, it's so heavily Republican. There's a string of candidates that are kind of running on that ideology. And it's not so much about what they think about policy. It's what do they think about issues like religion? What do they think about issues um, like former President Trump and some of these kind of national issues that maybe don't have a direct impact on Oklahoma, but people kind of want to know, you know, what you think about them. And I kind of kind of call them, you know, these kind of Fox News issues and not because I'm, I'm downgrading that per 
say, but um, one of the things that Senator Yeck told me is that when he's knocking doors, he said, you know, I know what's on Fox News that night because that's what voters want to talk about. And what's on Fox News is not about you know, education funding in Oklahoma or uh, infrastructure or uh, incentives for business. You know, it's about these big national ideological issues. And so I think what you see in this Senate District 26 is kind of encapsulating what you're seeing in the Republican Party. And you talk about that statesman quote. You know, I went to an event, a fundraiser for Senator Yeck uh, in West in this Western Oklahoma district. And it was kind of a who's who of, of established Western Oklahoma politicians. And I keep using this word establishment or an, an established candidate. And I'm not sure Senator Yeck would appreciate that word because I think we're I think that's why they said statesman. I think they're trying to find kind of how do you convey that this person has experience um, and has a, a record, a conservative record, without kind of feeding the narrative of the opponent that this person is an insider and has become part of the quote unquote establishment too long. So the labor commissioner race, which is a statewide Republican runoff, also has an incumbent uh, who I think many would classify her as a statesman. She's facing an opponent who says that Leslie Osborne, the incumbent, is not conservative enough. What similarities and differences do you see in that race compared with the Senate district that we're just talking about? There are some similarities, although both are kind of the insider, right? Because the challenger representative, Sean Roberts, is a member of the legislature. So he is, you know, I guess by definition, an insider and is a politician as well. I think what's really interesting to me about this race, well, first I'll answer your question about not being conservative enough. Um, I guess that's kind of in the eye of the beholder about what it means to be a true conservative. But it seems these days that when someone says that you're not conservative enough, they're again, they're not necessarily talking about your opinion on politics. They're talking about your opinion on ideology. And and it's going to be interesting what voters think when they're voting for labor commissioner. I mean, a very specific role, you know, tasked with overseeing a state agency, you know, various labor issues and licensing issues that really, I don't want to say they don't have anything to do with ideology, but very policy based. But here you have a challenger coming in saying you're not conservative enough, which in his eyes can often mean uh, you're not supporting the party enough. You're not supporting our ideology enough. You're not supporting the former president enough. The other thing I think is interesting about this race is you have uh, in the challenger, uh, Representative Roberts, um, is endorsed by Governor Kevin Stitt. And so it's not, you know, every day that you see the governor endorse a challenger to to an incumbent. So um, I don't think this is going to be a referendum on the governor. Um, I don't think that we can e- extrapolate much from the results of this to say that Governor Stitt is in trouble or not when it comes to November. But he's going to have to wear this record somewhat because he is openly endorsed uh, Representative Roberts, who's taking on the incumbent. I can't help but think when you talk about the ideology, I can't help but see the parallel to the state superintendent race. Perhaps that has been the biggest feature of this whole ideology debate is how it applies to education and schools and what kids are actually learning and being taught in classrooms. I'm curious what insight you see into that race, if you're seeing that same theme play out there, but also just how heavily do school issues play into that kind of ideology zeitgeist happening? Yeah, well, the superintendent's race, you're right, is a perfect example of this kind of ideology versus policy debate that we're having right now. And I think education, and and Maria obviously know this better than anybody, has long been an important policy issue, but it's kind of become the political arena of our day right now. I mean, a lot of issues that are being debated, not just in a superintendent's race, but in a governor's race or a presidential race, are having to do with schools. And there's something very deeply personal about schools. I mean, for those who have kids in schools, there's something personal about that. We all went to school, so we have some idea of what the education system looks like. But in the superintendent's race, I mean, you have, uh, you know, Ryan Walters, who's very much running on that ideology platform. Now, 
I guess he would say he probably would take some exception to that and say, I'm talking about policy. You know, he talks a lot about, quote unquote, wokeness, you know, and wanting to protect um, students um, from indoctrination. And, you know, I'm sure he would say that that's a policy issue. Um, But then uh, Superintendent April Grace, I think she's going to be talking a lot more about policy, about curriculum, uh, about student growth, about uh, school funding. And I think it's kind of a difference between what do you know and what do you feel? And once again, that's kind of maybe reduces it too much. But I think if you're in Walter's camp, you feel like he's speaking to something that's true. You just feel it. You feel either because you've, you're, quite frankly, you're afraid maybe of what's happening inside of a classroom or what might be happening to your child if you're kind of scared of some of these issues. Policy is something you kind of know. You kind of know that maybe schools could use some more funding or more targeted funding or more resources. So it's kind of when I think about that policy versus ideology, it's kind of what do you know versus what do you feel? And both of those things kind of drive our decision-making you know, process. We use both of them to make decisions. But I think in this, in this election, voters are either going to be leaning one way or the other. And I think we're going to see on Tuesday what whether it's what you know or what you feel is going to be more effective in turning out voters. I want to switch gears here real quick. Former President Donald Trump, I think, gave a clear roadmap in 2016 to getting elected with that strategy of projecting the image of a disruptor coming from the outside of politics. Um, and I, I wanted to ask if we could take a look back real quick, you know, if that has become a common and successful strategy in Oklahoma elections. I don't know. I was thinking about this question a little bit, and I'm sure Democrats would say yes. But I don't know um, that I, not speaking for either party, would say that it's been a successful roadmap. And and here's why. Because on one hand, I don't see too many candidates or too many people in office right now that really kind of embody who Trump is. And I don't know that anybody really can. I mean, he's very much a unique figure. But I do think there's been some attempts. And I think we're seeing this at the federal level. Um, you think about Senator Langford uh, running for re-election. One of his challengers, uh, Jackson Lawmeyer, a a Tulsa minister really leaned heavily into that Trump playbook, um, not just the Trump playbook, but into the kind of Trump loyalty test. Like I'm, I'm more conservative because I'm the bigger fan of Trump. And I think, uh, you know, I guess you could say that that wasn't successful, that Langford, you know, by retaining his seat or winning the primary, you know, was able to, to show that that roadmap isn't isn't always successful. Although Langford himself is not, you know, does not uh, disown the former president by any means. Um, and then I think in the other Senate race, I mean, you think you see T.W. Shannon and Mark Wayne Mullen are both kind of running on that, you know, who's more Trump, Trump-like or who's more of a fan of Trump. So I think definitely in these federal races, you see that. You don't hear it as much. And, you know, when I talk to at the local level, you don't hear it as much. When I talk to, to Brady Butler going back to that the Senate District uh, 26 race, he didn't talk about Trump, but he talked like Trump, if that makes sense. And I think Republican primary voters can kind of pick up on that, that you may not have to use the former president's name in order to convey that you're a supporter of the former president. And so I think in terms of is it a roadmap in Oklahoma, I think it's mixed, but I do think some fidelity towards the former president is important in a lot of voters' minds, especially in a primary. And and once again, we're talking about, you know, in most races, Republican voters only casting a ballot. Can I look back real quick at the 2018 governor's race? Because I wonder, I wasn't at the paper at the time, but you were covering that race pretty closely. Um, And and I'm curious if you saw parallels between Kevin Stitt, the uh, initial governor candidate. Obviously, he's much more established now, but, you know, he came in from the business world, was new to politics entirely, ran as a, a Trump loyalist. I don't know if you would see 
kind of him running the same way this year now that he's uh, up for re-election. But when we talk about whether candidates have had success with this strategy, is it fair to apply that to Governor Stitt? I don't know. You know, I, I say that, you know, Democrats, I think, have kind of they kind of see a lot of Republicans in the Trump mold that maybe aren't quite. I've heard a lot of Democrats say that Stitt is kind of a mini Trump. And I've always kind of thought that that's not exactly accurate. One, because, again, it's kind of hard to have another Trump. I mean, he's such a unique figure. But two, there's a lot of things about the governor that are very different. I mean, just personally that are different. I mean, this is, he's, you know, I mean, I think it's fair to say that he's a family man and maybe that's not necessarily part of, uh, you know, Trump's core image. You know, Trump did not win the Republican primary in Oklahoma. So this was not an early state that embraced his message. Um, and Dale, I, you will correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was Ted Cruz, right, that won the primary. Um, and then four years, you go back before that. And I think it was Huckabee from Arkansas, if I'm right. So maybe there's some geography at play there. But, you know, a Republican uh, strategist once told me that in Oklahoma, we like nice guy governors. I mean, we just like, you know, looks like a nice guy, you know, the guy that you could have a you know beer with in the backyard and have a pleasant conversation. And so, you know, Stitt is not that kind of bombastic guy. He's definitely not a, I mean, all politicians stretch the truth, but obviously the former president has had a relationship with the truth that is unique. Um, and I don't think that that the governor has necessarily, you know, kind of embraced that, you know, that rule. I mean, everybody spins, you know, so I'm not saying that the, that you never see that. Um, I almost wonder if in Oklahoma, though, it would have been interesting if, if, if Stitt would have got a challenger from the right. And he and he did get some challengers in the Republican primary. But it would have been interesting if he was all like a Jackson Lamar type that really ran on like, I'm going to push you to see how big you support the president because I'm all in. I don't know that that Stitt would have lost because I think he just the power of the incumbency and and he's and he would have had more money. But that would have been interesting to see. But we didn't see it this time around, and so I feel like Stitt can kind of avoid that. And it do, it may seem like a small thing, and I think the I think Stitt is definitely a supporter of the former president and. I'm assuming had voted for him and would vote for him again if he was on the ballot. He was one of the first Republican governors that I saw that called Biden the president elect. And um, I mean. You know, maybe his team huddled before he came out for that press conference. Uh, I think it was a COVID-related press conference when he said it. Um, maybe they huddled and he knew exactly what he was saying and they kind of, you know, went over it. But I tend to believe that he didn't, that he just kind of was like, well, he's the president-elect. I'm going to say it. There's no danger in me saying it. My seat's not at risk. People support me here in Oklahoma, even though this is a very pro-Trump state. This is a very Republican state. I'm the Republican governor. I don't have a lot of things. I don't have a lot to risk here to say that. And I would say that even supporters of the former president would probably give him a pass for that as well. I'm not sure that answers your question exactly, but I do think it would have been interesting to see a, a Trump-like candidate run in the Republican primary. I think it would have uh, it would have raised some interesting questions. Well, we may have to wait another four years for that to happen on the statewide level. So, Ben, you've you've covered politics, especially campaign politics, for uh, quite a while. You'll see. Uh, during a campaign, promises being made, you'll see an image being crafted, and um, you know both you and our terms legislature as as capital reporters, you know that once a person gets into office, everything's up for grabs as, as far as you know the, the differences between how they were as a candidate versus how they govern, whether it's in a, a legislative position or you know a, an administrative position. So you know from your experience, from what you've seen. Uh, once candidates who are disruptors or trying to come in and shake things up, once they actually do get elected, if they get elected, how have they governed? Do they stick to their guns? Do they remain the you know the the disruptor that they were 
trying to convince people that they were during the campaign, or do they start to become a little bit more of the establishment politician that you're describing? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think there's some, in some regard, the office def- definitely does kind of mold you a little bit. But I think you see, you know, and I won't necessarily go through a list of names here, but you see kind of these disruptor candidates, both Democrats and Republicans. And I think a Democrat, it's easier for them to stick to that disruptor role because as the minority and as the extreme minority, it's just, I mean, that's kind of, you know, let's face it, you're not going to get a lot of policy passed. Um, you can take the compromising route so that you're, you know, joining the majority on votes, or you can t- kind of play that disruptor role. And that's just kind of your your role. You know that you're going to be the counter to what the what the Republican Party is doing. I think for the dis- disruptors that we've seen in the Republican Party, it's been interesting. I think I think party leadership has kind of sometimes given them sp- their space to do that. You know, if there's a particular vote that they want to, you know, criticize or say, I'm going to vote against or give a speech. I mean, of course, they've got the right to give their speech. It's not like they're getting permission from, from leadership. But leadership kind of like kind of knows the game, so to speak. You know, I kind of know how you got here. I know your path. I know what you feel like your constituents want to hear. We're going to let you do that. Where I think the shortcomings of a disruptor, you know, whatever that does mean, um, is they're not finding a lot of success in, in leadership. Now, once again, if you're a Democrat, maybe you do look at the House leader and the Speaker pro tem is pretty extreme based on your own personal policies. But I would say that overall, as Republicans go, while both the House and Senate leaders are very conservative, I would not call them disruptors. And so what that tells me is that the caucus still kind of likes that kind of more level-headed, middle of the road for the caucus, not by the for book by the book, person. you know, kind of person. Now, if we see that switch, then I think we can say that, hey, there's a role for the, dis- the disruptor in this party. But I mean, you have... Um, you know, Speaker McCall, who's a banker, um, those usually aren't disruptors. <laughs> uh, um, they can disrupt the economy, but they're not usually disruptors in the way that we're, we're using it. And so I think right now you're seeing that the disruptor can have their niche. And we have seen some that have their niche, I mean, especially like on the issue of abortion. I mean, there are some, those the abolitionists who've came in and said, you know, no abortion at all before Roe v. Wade was overturned. You know, Republican leadership would say, we can't go as far as they want to go because we know it'll get thrown out by the courts. And they would get kind of frustrated, you know, that they were kind of, you know, doing their thing, but they kind of gave them the space to do that. And obviously, that's changed in this post-war world when we're talking about abortion. But I think right now, when you look at the caucus, the caucus does not reward disruptors, at least with leadership positions. At least that's kind of my assessment of it. And we'll see. Maybe that changes. Ben, thank you for joining us this week and, and talking about this really interesting uh, through line that we're seeing in, in some of these runoff races. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us this week. This podcast is possible because of the Oklahomans' subscribers. We encourage you to subscribe if you can. You can read these stories and more every day in The Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.